So chasing carrots, we're talking about the endless, uh, the continual pursuit of more. In the first week, uh, we, we talked about uh, the pursuit of fame, uh, which is very unique at this time in history in our culture. Last week, we talked about money and stuff. And this week, we're talking about comfort and the, the, the desire that we have uh, to be super comfortable, to be laid back, and to be... Let's try try again. This week, uh, we're not talking about comfort. We're talking about the need to be perfect, to get everything right. And did I mean to do that, or did I execute that perfectly, or was, I guess you'll never know. Uh, So the need to be perfect, and the chasing carrots idea, it, it comes from Back in the day, uh, they'd put a carrot in front of a donkey, and you, you hold the carrot out there, the donkey would chase it, and you just keep holding it as you're riding it, the donkey would keep going, and it would never catch the carrot, and there's things in our lives that we pursue, that we try and gra- grab a hold of, that we think is going to deliver the goods, it's going to make us happy, it's going to make us significant, it's going to give us a life of purpose, it's going to, you know, I can just finally <sighs> be who I was made to be once I get that thing, and those things... The Bible calls that idolatry, by the way. Those things never deliver on the promise uh, that they give us that we will be able to get significance, happiness, joy, uh, belonging, love uh, from any of those things. And so we're talking about those carrots. And this week we are talking about perfectionism uh, and our pursuit of being perfect, the unhealthy pursuit of being perfect. Uh, Some of you uh, have probably more... Uh, of an inclination to chase this carrot than others, but I think many of us chase this carrot in some form. Uh, I know that there's people like this in my life because I stack the dishwasher a certain way. Uh, And then all of a sudden I hear the dishwasher being unstacked and restacked. Uh, And and I'm not picking on my wife because... uh, it, it runs in her family. I go to her in-laws, and it's it, my father-in-law, he does not allow anybody to stack the dishwasher. Uh, it doesn't matter who you are. You stack it one way, he unstacks the whole thing, he restacks it the other way. And, uh, and so if you're that type of personality, you like, need to restack the dishwasher because there's a right way to do it and a wrong... Anybody like that? Confession time? Okay. There is a right and wrong way to stack the dishwasher. So some of you, it's like, I just, I just, things need to be a certain way. Everything needs to be perfect, and you have this expectation on yourself to, to get everything right, to, to be perfect, to, to not make any mistakes, and it's funny because you have people in your life that uh, make a mistake, your friends, your spouse, your kids, and you say, you know, that's okay, that's okay, because everybody makes, fill in the blanks, everybody makes mistakes, and, it, and it's weird because you, you have all this grace and understanding maybe for other people, uh, but you don't extend that to yourself. You expect yourself to be perfect. And so often, uh, this comes, these unrealistic expectations come because we're trying to, uh, to cover up. And we want to talk about that this morning. And when we, when we can't be perfect, we end up feeling guilty. We end up feeling shameful. We end up feeling unworthy. And uh, to top it all off, if you're a Christian and you read the Bible and you're following Jesus, you have this impossible standard. And then Jesus comes along and he says things like, be perfect, therefore... As your heavenly Father is perfect. No pressure. Just, just be perfect like God is perfect. No big deal. 
Just be like God. Never sin, never think a bad thought, never make a mistake, never look at somebody critically, never judge anybody. Just be perfect as God is perfect, and that's what Jesus said, so that's what we should do, right? Easy, easy. Some of you, I think of uh, some of maybe the moms in the room. You know, your life, just to be honest, let's be honest, it's pretty easy, right? Like, I mean, you... You got to have a Pinterest worthy home. You got to have Instagram worthy looks and fashion. You got to be able to take your kids to the zoo. You got to be able to do crafts with them. You got to do these big elaborate birthday parties and build these birthday cakes. And you got to have a successful career and also uh, balance that with your hobbies. And you have to post on Facebook uh, regularly, work out five times a day, feed your kids the healthy stuff, not just, you know, organic. Uh, you got to feed them organic kale and carrots and don't give them the packaged stuff because that's not good. For them. It's easy, right? It's easy. Not so much. This expectation to be perfect. You know, maybe you feel guilty because you're at home with the kids and you're not uh, maybe providing the way you would want, want to the household income. And then you go to work and then you feel bad because you're not home enough with the kids being the mom that you're supposed to be. How do we be perfect? It's not just a thing with moms. This is a, th- this is a thing with uh, everybody. Oh, here's a, sorry. Maybe you can relate to that. Am I a good mother, Susan? My name is Amy. Uh, we have these moments. But it's not just for moms. Maybe for, you know, for, for dads, you got the pressure to be successful, to, to, to provide for your family. You got to get out there in the dog-eat-dog world and, 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 make, and make a living and make sure that your family has what they need in, in the culture and what they need is changing depending on what their friends had. So you feel this pressure to provide a certain type of lifestyle for your family. And then you get home after you've been working your tail off all day and then you're expected to be loving and patient and kind and you're just all amped up because you spent the day trying to be perfect and do everything right. And if you're a youth, then maybe, you know, it's an impossible place to be perfect as a youth because what is perfect, what is right, uh, what's cool, what's in is always, always, always changing. And you're chasing it. You're chasing it. And, and if you're anything like me, you always feel short. I, li- I live in this world of trying to live up to the expectations of others. Uh, just being honest here, putting unrealistic realistic expectations on myself and then having ideas of what God's expectations are me. And I always feel like I'm falling short of this line of perfection. And I think this impacts us in different ways. We're trying to be perfect and we can't quite get there. And so some of us respond in different ways. Some of us respond by, by lying and we lie in order to, sh- uh, to show uh, that we got all of our life together. And maybe it's not even lying verbally. Maybe it's just li- lying uh, in your image. Hello, hashtag Instagram. I, like, I got to put this life together, represent this. And we all know that your Instagram profile is not the same as your real life. It's just, it just isn't. Full confession, right? Can I get an amen? Anybody? anybody? Okay, your, your Instagram life is not a pure reflection of your real life. But, but we feel like I got to put it out there in the world. I got everything together. Or maybe you've, your pursuit of perfection, you try and deal with it by not even trying. To quote the great theologian Homer Simpson, he said, the first step to failure is trying. So don't even try. That's what he said. 
And so for some of you are like, I don't have an issue with perfectionism. I just, don't, I just don't try at all. Well, the reason you're not trying is because you have this expectation to be perfect. And because you don't, you don't think you're going to make it, you just say, I'm not going to try at all. That was me in high school. That was me in high school. For some of you, you obsess over something. You got to get it exactly right. You know, I just, you know, I'm doing this thing and I, I, I got to be perfect. I got to practice it. I, I, you're just thinking about it. You can't sleep at night because you got to get it exactly right. And now you're obsessing and obsessing and obsessing. And, uh, and you're realizing that this is actually hurting you. Your obsession of it is hurting you. And it's actually helping you not to be perfect in all the other areas of your life. And, and you think, this is the price I got to pay in my family, uh, whatever, to be successful. You just obsess over it. And so I think many of us battle with this in all sorts of ways, depending on your personality, depending on your circumstances. Uh, but I think there's three types of perfectionists out there. Three types. Number one is the self-oriented perfectionist. Everybody say that. Self-oriented perfectionist. That was terrible. Uh, your dance response was better than your verbal response. Let, okay, you were, yeah, you were scared you were going to say it perfectly, yeah. Uh, self, say it again, self-oriented perfectionist. So this, if you are this person, you hold unrealistically high expectations of yourself and battle with feelings of guilt, often obsessing, like I said, to the point of inefficiency. You're prone to procrastinate and struggle with deep feelings of inadequacy. You feel like you got to live up to your own standards, and if you can't live up to your own standards, then you end up feeling shamed, uh, you end up feeling guilty. That's a self-oriented perfectionist. It's ori the whole idea of your perfection is around your own uh, self-expectations. The second is externally-oriented perfectionist. Everybody say that. Externally-oriented perfectionist. So if you're this person, you believe others expect you to be perfect, to cope with pressure, you often use self-deprecating humor as a defense. You often feel very, very alone. You can feel depressed and desperate because no matter how hard you try, it will never be enough to live up to the expectations that other people have put onto you. The externally oriented perfectionist. And thirdly, I think there's others, say it with me, others oriented perfectionist. This is when you impose your expectations onto somebody else. If this is you, you expect other people in your life to live up to impossible standards that you've put on them. And because of that, you actually have a challenge in empathy. You lack a little bit of empathy in you, uh, and you often tend to tear down others or be abrasive or demeaning in your humor towards others because they can't quite meet the standard that you have put out for them. Some of you have had parents like that, where they just made you feel little and they made you feel small because you couldn't meet the standards they have. Maybe some of you are parents like that. We all maybe struggle with perfectionism in some way. And we often think of this type of thing as a psychological thing, uh, but it's actually a very spiritual thing. Why? Because perfectionism is often covering our deepest insecurities, our deepest fears. It's covering, to use a biblical or a theological word, it's covering our sinfulness. And if you go all the way back to the beginning of the Genesis story, in the beginning of your Bible, the story of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve was living in perfect harmony, perfect with God, self, others. This is what we call shalom. They're living in shalom with all of creation, the way that God intended it. And then they disobeyed God and decided to do life on their own make, and eat from the, 
one tree that God told them not to eat from. And so and when they disobeyed God, when they turned from this perfect uh, way that God had set up the world and said, I'm going to do this my own way, they, uh, they immediately in that moment felt insecure. They felt shame. And in fact, the story in Genesis says this, that, they, that at that moment their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness, so they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. They felt flawed. They suddenly became aware of their own vulnerability. They felt shame. They felt guilty. They, they felt this need to hide, and so they put fig leaves on to cover themselves, to create the appearance, the appearance of perfection so that their imperfections wouldn't be seen. Now, a number of years ago, I was, uh, I was working at a, a Bible camp in southern Manitoba. I was the ski instructor. Um, it was a pretty good gig. I got, to ride the, I got to drive the boat every day, all day long. Good gig. Um, and, uh, and so I did that for a few years. My first, years when, my first year when I started doing that, uh, when I was 16 years old, um, I got the job of driving the boat, but I actually didn't know how to ski at that point. So you're, you know, you are the ski instructor, boat driver, and I was teaching kids how to ski, but I didn't myself know how to ski. <laughs> um, so uh, when I would get out in the water behind the boat, uh, I'm like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to deal with my imperfection uh, by being different and being cool and silly and... Uh, I don't need people to know that I don't ski, and so I would, I would like, I would body surf, right? So, uh, does anybody know what body surfing is? You basically just grab a rope behind the boat and you hang on for dear life, and and you hang on long enough that your body planes above the water and you start like just flopping around. Uh, it's amazing. It's painful. Uh, so, I there was this, there was a particular girl at this uh, at in this summer that I'm like. I need to impress this girl. She needs to know how cool and awesome I am. And uh, there was one uh, tuck time where the kids are all busy. You get to, it's a free hour for the counselors. And we went, we're down to the boats, and I got someone else to drive the boat, and I don't know how to ski, right? So I'm like, uh, get a, yeah, get a body surf. Um, check this out. It's pretty cool. And it, it, it was a pretty old boat, boat, so it took about 30 seconds to actually get out of the water. So you're just like, hanging on, holding your breath, and you're like just chugging all this water, trying not to drown. And, but eventually, if you're persistent enough, you will pop out of the water. And so uh, I held on. Like she's going to think I'm so awesome, so cool. And I held on, came planed out of the water, and, uh, and I start flopping around and doing my moves. Uh, and, uh, and then my shorts fly off. And I'm like, I'm, I'm on my back. I'm on my back. And I'm like, I mean, I got I to gotta ride this thing out. I, I'm on my back. I'm, I'm hanging on. And then I'm like, man, she can see everything. Uh, and it, it, it doesn't occur to me to let go of the rope. I just, I flip over to my stomach. And I'm like, and that, so the first one hurt me emotionally. The second one hurt me physically. And finally... Uh, I, I let go, I finally clued in, I got to let go of the rope. Uh, by, by that point, I was, I was way far away from wherever my trunks had sunk. Uh, and so I'm sitting, 
in the water, naked, with a boat driver and this girl in the backseat who was spotting. Uh, and I, I didn't have a, it wasn't like one of those new boats that has like the onboard where you can climb up on the back and uh, it was like one of those old school ones that, you know, were like a few feet off the water and there's no easy, smooth way to get into the boat, right? So I had to do like the whole, like throw the leg. <laughs> you know, she's, she's in the, she's like looking the other way on that side of the boat and I get in the boat, and, you know, the driver throws me like this towel, I'm in like this fetal position. Um, feeling such shame. Oh, I still feel panicked when I, th when, I think, when I think back about that moment. So, you know, we, ha we have that physical reaction when we become naked and exposed before people, or at least we probably should. Uh, if you don't, then we have prayer time at the end of the service. We'd be out for it. But it, it's this human reaction that if somebody were actually to see me for who I am, like without all the clothes on, uh, without, without everything that I'm projecting, without the appearance that I would like people to see, and they can get behind that appearance, and they can actually get down to me, vulnerable me, with nothing being projected, our human response is to go into the fetal position to cover up, to hide. And I think, in many ways, our pursuit of perfection has the spiritual root that we see right here in the very beginning of the biblical story, when we try and be perfect in how this world expects to be perfect, how God expects us to be perfect, and we don't feel like we can live up to it, and we end up trying to find fig leaves or other things to actually cover ourselves, to hide ourselves, to protect ourselves, to make sure that people don't see us for who we really are. And so we have this perfect standard. You know, God gave us the law. Jesus said, be perfect as your, your heavenly Father is perfect. He gave us the Old Testament, has all these things that we should be doing and the ways that we should be living. And then uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, after Jesus came, died, was resurrected, we have the Apostle Paul, and he writes this letter to the Romans, and he says this, for no one, no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. So no one includes me. Uh, look to the person beside you. and No one includes them. You know, they're imperfect, but you're imperfect. No one includes the teenager. No, no one includes uh, the 80-year-old man or woman. No one includes the pastor. No one includes the religious person that does everything as much as they can do. No one includes all of us. On your own, you cannot be perfect enough. You can't be. The Bible's clear about this. You cannot perfectly live. It's an impossibility. So, that begs the question, why do we even have a law? Why do we even have standards? Why does God, why did God even require anything of us, ask anything of us, if he knew that we were incapable of actually living to that full standard? Well, in Romans 3.20, if you read on, it says, for no one can be made right with God, by doing what the law commands, the law simply shows us how sinful we are. The whole purpose of the law, the whole purpose of the commandments, the whole purpose of our Old Testament was actually to reveal to humanity, to you and I, how sinful we are. 
Now, you and I are more than a sinner, and, I, and I've preached about this lots. So, you know, you know some, some pastors love to just, like, come down on people, just make you feel... The, more terrible you feel about yourself, the better person you'll be. No, I don't, I don't believe in that. You are inherently beautiful. You're inherently valuable. You're inherently lovable. God created you in his image, and he created you to be his sons and daughters. Like, that is always true. But we are broken people. We are cracked. The Bible calls us image bearers. We're cracked image bearers. We do not reflect God's image to the world perfectly. And so, yeah, we're inherently uh, loved invaluable, but we're also broken. We're also imperfect. We also have cracks. And here's the reality is until you and I come to grips with this truth that we're sinners, that we're imperfect, we won't see our need for a Savior. And that's why the law is so beautiful. Not because we can attain it, but because it actually lays the context and the opportunity for us to become aware of our imperfection. We, we can no longer lie to ourselves and think, hey, I got this all figured out. I'm, you know, we can even fool ourselves with our perfect images that we project. We can start to believe it ourselves. But the Bible puts it in front of us, is this, this is the perfect image. Do you live up to it? And, we, and it's the context of that we say, no, I can't. And that actually leaves the opportunity for the good news, for the grace that Jesus brings us. Maybe you don't think you're perfect. Let's, just, let's take a look at the Ten Commandments. There's just ten of them, right? So uh, don't put anything ahead of God. Guilty. Anybody else? Oh, it's just me. Okay. Uh, guilty. I put things ahead of God all the time. Things that I, pe- people's opinions I care more about or things that, you know, have my affection or I think about or I ponder more than I ponder God. All the time. Don't lie. Okay. Anybody lied here? Verbally, maybe lied in your image, projecting something. Guilty. Don't covet. Yeah. Done that. Don't use God's name in vain. Done that a few times. Uh, and, you know, that, I'm like four commandments into the Ten Commandments. Never mind. You know, then you had the Pharisees who uh, they had 615 or 613 laws or commandments they, they tried to live by. And then Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Like, I couldn't even get the Ten Commandments right. So Jesus tells us to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, tells us your righteousness has to surpass that of the Pharisees. And part of the reason he did that is that we need to become aware uh, that we are sinful, that we fall short, that we are actually broken image bearers. So then how are we made right with God? Not by religious efforts, not by good works, not by trying to eliminate bad stuff in our lives, not by going to church. By what? Well, if you just keep reading Paul's letter in, the, in, in Romans, it says we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true, he says, for everyone who believes, no matter who you are. And in our mission statement, sometimes we say, SunWest exists to guide all people, everyone into a lifelong, authentic relationship with Jesus. Why? Because of this. Because of this. Because we believe the good news is for all people. We believe all people are valuable in God's eyes, but all people are also broken and imperfect. That Jesus, God with skin on, the perfect man actually came, died, sinless, on the cross, for the cruci- uh, crucified for the for- forgiveness of our sins, was resurrected to life on the third day, and now invites us 
because he is more powerful than sin, more powerful than death, to actually live in light of his perfection. And he gives that to us. We actually stand in right standing with God because of what Jesus has done. Because Jesus invites us to actually take his life on us. Romans 3.22. So we're made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. This is for everyone. It doesn't matter how bad you are. It doesn't matter what your story is. I don't know all of you, and I don't know all of your stories, but I know Jesus, and I know that it doesn't matter where you've been, but it doesn't matter where you're going. And he invites you, whatever your story is, to actually move towards him, uh, to move your heart towards him, to put your faith into him. This is for everyone. So this is the difference between perfectionism and grace. Jesus doesn't actually require you to be perfect. He, uh, he gives you grace. And sometimes you think it's, well, yeah, it's Jesus plus church. Jesus plus going to a group. Jesus plus helping the old lady cross the street. Jesus plus, you know, giving nice gifts to your pastor. And all those things are really great. It's not like all those, there's nothing wrong with any of those things. But that's actually not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus plus nothing. Jesus plus nothing. My grace is sufficient for you. And so when we, when we compare perfectionism and grace... We start to see that perfectionism is actually a spiritual issue, not a psychological one primarily. Perfectionism focuses on what I do, but grace focuses on what Jesus has already done. Perfectionism is all about me. It's all about my works. It's all about my effort. It's, it's me, me, me. Grace is actually all about Jesus, what Jesus did, what Jesus has accomplished, what Jesus has done. It's all about him. Perfectionism believes that, that if, I, if I obey, if I'm good enough, if I'm holy enough, if I'm worthy, then I can be worthy of love. Grace says, this, it's different than that. It, it starts with God's love. It starts with God's approval, and I live from there. So someone can live righteously. Someone could, you know, do the right things. But I, I believe what the Bible is telling us is pay attention to your heart because there's wrong motives and good motives for doing the right things. You can have wrong motives for being perfect, you can have good motives for being perfect. It's like if, if I'm going to, if I were to buy, buy my wife flowers, I can buy them because I'm supposed to, and it's her, it's Valentine's Day, or I could buy them because I love her and I want to buy them flowers. The, the, the action is the exact same, but it might come from a, two totally different places. Do you, do you recognize the difference? One way of looking at this, and I'll just do this quickly, and I've, I've taught on this before, but, but I noticed these themes in scriptures quite a number of years ago, um, and, and it just kind of clicked for me. And if, if you look, if you look at, the, at the good news in the New Testament, you'll notice uh, these same themes that kind of show up over and over again. And, and I would call this like the triangle of grace or relationship. And very simply, in 1 John chapter 4, it says, God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into this world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. John is just saying this, that the initiative starts with God. That God loved us first. In the awkward junior high dance of life, where there was this chasm you know, the junior high dance, right? I can remember all the guys on one side, all the girls on the other. And you see that poor sucker that's like, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. And he walks across the gym, asks the girl to dance, and she says no, and then he does the walk of shame all the way back. 
It was a fun game we played in junior high. Um, the, well, what the Bible is saying is that, that, that God, in the person of Jesus, took the initiative. He actually came, knowing that he might be rejected. And the Bible says that he, those he, who, who he came to did reject him. He took the initiative. He, took, he, he came to us. This is the beginning of the gospel. It's God's initiative, God's love for us. And then secondly, we love God. We respond to God in love. We love each other. This is what it says in 1 John 4, 19. We love each other. We're able to love because he first loved us. Our capacity to love comes as a response to God's initiative to love us. And then Jesus says in John 14, 21, those who accept my commandments and obey them are the ones who love me. Okay, do you see this? God takes the initiative. God loves us. We respond to God by loving him and loving each other. First and second, the, the, the greatest commandment, love God, love, love each other. And out of that, we actually become obedient in the way that we're behaving. It's, it's powerful. You might think this is, this is simple, but, but, but here's what we often do. And I would call this the triangle of religion or perfectionism, is that we do everything the opposite. Man, if I could just figure out my life, if I could be perfect enough, if I could get over this addiction, if I could stop being so angry, if I could just become more loving, be a better parent, be a better what, whatever it is, if I could figure this out, then I would show God and I would show others how loving I am. And then, around in the corner from two to one, I would be acceptable enough in God's eyes that he might love me back. And that might be the way that broken, imperfect people work, but that is not the way that our perfect, holy, heavenly Father works. We can't earn God's love. His love is already there. So we need to recognize this propensity as human beings to, to try and be obedient, to try and behave, to try and, try and be good enough so that we can prove that we're loving enough that we get it right enough that God might love us. It's, it's anti-gospel. It's anti-Jesus. Jesus takes the initiative. Jesus comes full of love, full of grace, full of truth, and he invites us to respond to that. He actually makes himself vulnerable in relationship because he could be rejected, but he can also be accepted. And when we step into a loving relationship with God, now our life actually is transformed as we live that out in relationship with Him. So the pressure's off. The pressure to be perfect is off. We don't have to be. And because the pressure's off, there's two things that I want to highlight. Because the pressure's off, I invite you to choose people over perfection. Choose people over perfection. We get to choose intimacy. We get to choose relationship. We get to choose depth of connection instead of performance or perfection. Choose people over perfection. You know, some of you know exactly what I'm, what I'm talking about because you haven't invited people into your home in years because your home isn't perfect enough. If I could just get my home perfect enough, I could, I could invite people into the space. But you never feel like it's quite perfect enough. So either you don't invite anybody in or you just invite people in that you know have way messier homes than you. It's always a good play. You know, it's a, it's a good step in the right direction. Their lives are really messed up. Let's have them over. It'll make me feel better about myself. Uh, no, the pressure is off, and so you can actually choose people over the, over the pressure on yourself to be perfect. 
You know, there's a powerful story in Luke chapter 10. we got two sisters hosting a dinner party with Jesus at it. Can you imagine Jesus is coming over to your house? you gotta, you got to have your stuff together if Jesus is coming over to your house, right? So you got Mary and you got Martha. you got two sisters. And many of us are like Martha. You know, Martha was freaking out. Everything had to be perfect. She's busy getting the house all clean, getting all the throw pillows in the right places, and, uh, and do, you know, getting the, the food on the stove, making sure everything's cooked. And then you have Mary. Man, Mary is so frustrating. I don't know if you've got Marys in your life, but can you just imagine? Jesus comes over, and you're busy trying to create this perfect place for Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior. He's hanging out in your house, and Mary could care less. She could care less. She didn't contribute any money to the meal. She didn't help in the kitchen. Uh, she stacked the dishwasher wrong. She, she, she didn't do anything right. She didn't do anything right. And so Martha says to Jesus, Jesus, Mary isn't doing anything. He, she, it's so frustrating. Can you help me out, Jesus? And then Jesus responds to Martha by saying this, my dear Martha, you're worried about and upset over all these details. There's only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered it, and it will not be taken away from her. Mary, there's one thing. There's one thing that you need to be concerned about, and Mary's discovered it, and you haven't. And you might think you're busy being perfect and getting all of your house and your world in order, but you've actually missed it. I'm here. This is the most important thing. And you're not present because you're worried about being perfect. Now, I mean, obviously there's practical applications to this. Like I said, some of you maybe don't have people in your house or there, you know, it's, there's some practical reasons why it's hindered relationship. Your life is too messy. But metaphorically, I think it's also true that some of you won't have people in your house or your space in your life because you feel like it's too messy i got to keep you at arm's length because I don't want you to see my imperfection. But because the pressure's off, because the pressure's off, we can choose people over performance. We don't have to feel like we got to be perfect to be accepted by others because we know that we're already accepted by God, and if God accepts us and God's for us, then who can be against us? And we can actually live from that place of confidence of what God thinks about us. Right? So if you come over to my house, I mean, my, my house is usually pretty tidy because my wife is amazing. But there might be a chance that you'll smell some smells from my little kids. I'm going to blame it on them. It's nice as they get older. It's like, yeah, oh, it's them. Um, there, there might be a chance that you'll find some pee on the toilet seat. And I, I guarantee you, it's not mine. Just, I'm just saying it's not mine. It's not Lisa's either. It's not hers. Uh, but you, you might come over and you will, everything won't be perfect. You might look into my own space and home spiritually, relationally, and find that I'm not perfect. And so I have two, re I have two ways that I can respond. I can continue to prop up this idea that I got it all together or I can lead the way and be vulnerable and say, hey, this is who I am. This is my life. It's not perfect. And it's in that place that true community, true relationship, true intimacy actually can thrive. So we can choose people over being perfect because Jesus has chosen us. 
The second thing is that we can choose perfect love over perfect performance. What is the spirit of perfectionism? It's a covering of our deepest fears and insecurities. So to think about that for a second, what are you covering? Some of you are covering, covering inadequacy or shame or guilt or fear of rejection or fear of being judged. Whatever it's covering, it's a bad covering. It's not working. Like all those carrots we've talked about, it's like you can chase it, but it actually is not going to give you the security that you think it's going to give you. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be. But you might be thinking, wait, wait a second. At the beginning of your sermon, Matt, didn't you just, didn't you quote Jesus and say that Jesus said to be perfect, therefore is your heavenly Father's perfect? Didn't I say that? Am I contradicting myself? I, I purposely quoted that verse out of context. If you pay attention to what Jesus is saying uh, in that whole sermon that he's giving, He's actually not talking about performance. He's not talking about getting all your stuff together. He's not talking about behavior. Listen to this. He's talking about love. He says, you've heard it said, love your enemy or love, or love your neighbor, hurt your enemy, uh, but I tell you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's what he's saying right before he says this. And he says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Aren't you just like the tax collector? What Jesus is saying when he says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, the, the word perfect there in the Greek means to be mature, to be whole. To actually be perfected in love. To love people well. In other words, when you think of like an 8-year-old might not have a fully mature body, but maybe a 24-year-old would. There, there's a growth and an invitation to become more mature in how we love other people and how we love God. Jesus saying, be more whole and complete in the way that you love God and others. Love, 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 love. Be perfected in how you love. That is the emphasis. If we, if we, if we twist that and think, be perfect in how, be, how I behave, we can actually try and behave in the right ways, but we become very unloving people. If we focus on loving God and loving others, like we, we saw in that triangle, then the way that we live actually starts to align with how God invites us to live. So out of those three perfectionists I mentioned earlier, you have the self-oriented, the externally oriented, the others oriented. Um, and so full confession mode right now, I'm the second one. If I, if I had to pick one of those two, I'm the second one. I'm externally oriented. I care about what other people think. And this takes time to work through. And you know, whatever orientation you might have is going to take time to work through. Uh, but my, one of my greatest fears is being inadequate and never being enough. Never giving enough. Never living up to what I think other people are expecting of me. And if, uh, you, know, if you were to chat with me and... Uh, and Lisa, you know, Lisa would tell you, um, you know, the amount of conversations we've even had in recent years where I say, you know, I just feel like I'm failing as a pastor, failing as a dad, failing as a husband, failing, and, I, and the list goes on, and it's like this constant feeling of inadequacy inadequ and never being enough. Because I have this expectation of what God wants from me, what other, others want from me, and so it's just a, this perpetual feeling of letting everybody down. So, that's, that's me. Um, you know, but then, you know, I, I can think, oh, I just got to push through. You know, I just got to work harder. If I could just, 
you know, be perfect in other people's eyes, be perfect in God's eyes. And, you know, I, I know, you know, I'm getting really tired and I'm, I'm working myself to the bone and I'm, I'm doing it imperfectly. But I, if I could just keep working harder and convince people that, you know, this is, you know, then, then I'll, you know, th- this is the price of success. This is the price of, you know, finally getting that carrot. It doesn't work. As I mature in Christ, as I mature in love, as I grow in my understanding of the gospel and what, what that actually means for who I am, the pressure comes off. I don't have to actually impress God because I actually know and believe what he already thinks of me. And then as I live that out, I can actually be free from what you think of me and what others think of me. Because it's not my calling to convince you that I'm good. My calling is to convince you that God is good. It's not, it's not your calling to show people how perfect your life is. It's your calling to show people how perfect God is. And here we start to touch on something so beautiful in Scripture that, you know, Paul talks about this a lot, that it's in your weakness that you are strong. That it's in your brokenness that actually creates an awareness for your need for a Savior. And it's also in your brokenness that people best see the grace and love of God at work in your own life. It's not about me and it's not about you. It's about Jesus. And when we struggle with being perfect, we've actually bought into the lie that it's about me. That if I can just get it together, uh, then I can convince myself and the whole world that, you know, that I'm good. It will never work. And so... We need to learn to be vulnerable before God and before one one another. And this is really, really difficult. When you step out in vulnerability in a relationship, it hurts. I can remember being 16 years old. That same summer, I was trying to impress that girl naked behind the boat. Um, I was also building a good friendship with somebody that would be one of my groomsmen at my wedding. Uh, And at that point in my life, I was knee-deep in a struggle with pornography, which I've talked about uh, quite a few times. Uh, but this was the very first time I thought, you know, camp environment, got this best friend that I'm developing, and I've never talked to anybody about this in my life, but, you know, I think God's calling me to be vulnerable, and I'm going to go there, and I, I just need to talk to him about it. And I remember we're staying up late one night in the cabin, it was just me and him, and I just said, hey, hey, bud, i got to talk to you about something. I said, you know, i got this thing in my life, and I don't know what to do with it, and I'm struggling, and he's like, Really? I've never heard of anyone struggle with that. It's like, I've never struggled with that. And that was the conversation. And so you just put your heart out there. It's like, and so what did that tell me? I said, well, I'm going to just put that all back in. Uh, just pr- keep projecting that I got my stuff together. And that went on for another three years or so uh, until I chose to be vulnerable enough again. And I think uh, that we could use a lot of work in learning how to be vulnerable with one, one another. Especially, you know, we live in this Western Calgarian culture where everybody has to be perfect. Everybody's got to have their stuff together. And it's a scary thing to be vulnerable with one another. It's a scary thing to be vulnerable with one another. And uh, if we go back to the Adam and Eve story, and I, you know, they decided to go do their own way, ignore God. Um, They felt shame. They felt vulnerable. They decided to try and cover up for themselves, which I think is a beautiful metaphor for what we all do. Um, And if you read that story all the way through, (laughs) 
Adam and Eve, they covered themselves up with these fig leaves, and then, uh, and then Jesus, and I'm going to say Jesus because it's God in physical form, which is Jesus, uh, comes into the scene, and it says this, and the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and, for Adam and his wife. And this, in a nutshell, is the story of Scripture. That we turn from God, that we feel shame, we feel guilt, that we feel this need to project a certain image, and God shows up and says, you don't need to do that, and He chooses to clothe us. He chooses to clothe us. And then if you pay attention to that theme, even as you read through the New Testament, Galatians 3, it says this, for all you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. In Romans 13, 14, it says, clothe yourself with the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Your pursuit of perfection may be the one thing that is stopping you from experiencing what you long for most, and that's intimacy with God and intimacy with others. Your desire to be perfect is actually keeping everything that you truly long for out. And I would invite you to practice vulnerability. And it'll be painful. You might have experiences like I've had like I've had. You might feel like you're naked, you got to go into the field position. You might, you know, confess to a friend and they don't respond the way that you want to. But as we become aware that God's predisposition towards us is one of love, is one of acceptance, that He took the initiative, that He loves us, and if He's, and if he's for us, nobody can be against us. Now that gives us the confidence to actually lead the way in vulnerability. I'm going to invite you uh, to stand, if you're able, as we sing this closing song. You know, Paul said about weakness, he said, uh, he was talking to God, and God said to him, my grace is all you need, my power works best in weakness, so now I am glad to boast in my weakness so that the power of Christ can work through me. I boast in my weakness, and the, the, the word we could use for weakness, there's actually Vulnerability. It's the opposite of power. I boast in my lack of power. I boast in how I'm exposed. I boast, you know, when I'm in a position where others can hurt me. I boast in that. Why do I boast in that? Because it's only when I become powerless that the power of God actually is activated in my life. And Jesus, the same concept we see in Philippians 2, he, he's not beyond this. It says that Jesus actually left his place of power and he laid it aside and he became vulnerable and took on the nature of a slave and died a criminal's death on the cross. And it's through his vulnerability that he was raised up and he's the name above every other name and every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what it says in Philippians 2. His power and his position came because he became vulnerable. And now he invites us to that same journey of descent to say, you know what, I'm going to stop projecting. I'm going to stop trying to cling on to power and having all my stuff together and you maybe came here this morning just keeping your stuff together. If I can just keep it together, if I can just keep it together. And, and God's saying, just blow it up. Like, just blow it up. Like, who are you trying to impress? God knows exactly what's going on in your life. And he says, become vulnerable. Become broken. Take a chance. And as we open ourselves up, we receive the healing and power that only God through his spirit can bring. And so I would invite you, even as we worship during this next song to ask God to give you the courage to be vulnerable which means the courage to throw perfectionism aside and 
recognize that Jesus is perfect and he already loves you and so you don't have to keep working so hard at being perfect. So Father, we thank you for each person in this room. We thank you that you love them, that you are crazy about them, that you took the initiative to come to them, that you became vulnerable. And Lord, we have the opportunity to receive you, to put our faith in you. We have the opportunity to throw off our coverings and become vulnerable before you and have you clothe us with your spirit. Lord, like Adam and Eve, we recognize that we've been clothing ourselves and we want to be clothed with your goodness, with your love, with your grace. We want your spirit to fill us. And so we invite you, Holy Spirit, in your presence to come and to clothe us with your righteousness, not because of what we've done, but because of what you've done in the name of Jesus. Invite our uh, our prayer teams forward uh, to the front, and uh, we do this every Sunday. We have prayer ministry opportunity available to you, um, and this is a very practical way just to practice vulnerability. Uh, it's a it's a great step to step out and become weak, to become vulnerable, uh, so that God in His power can come in and transform uh, your life and strengthen you. And that's a part of what happens at the end of every service. Um, and so. If if there's anything in your life that you would love prayer for, we would love to pray for you um, at the front. Uh, I, would, I would like to close in a corporate prayer. Uh, and I would invite you uh, just to pray out loud uh, with me. Uh, and you can repeat after me. And it's just, uh, I just want to respond to God and give us the opportunity to respond individually uh, to God. And maybe, this might be the first time you've ever prayed a prayer like this. Um, there's no pressure to pray it, but I would invite you to pray with me. Uh, together. So, uh, would you pray with me? Uh, dear Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your covering. I recognize my imperfection. I recognize my sinfulness. I know that I'm prone to wander. But I turn my heart towards you. I receive your grace. I receive your forgiveness. And I invite your Holy Spirit to clothe me. May I live with the courage that you've called me to live because of who you are, what you've done for me, and what you've called me to. In Jesus' name, amen.